Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to the all-new, all-different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic franchise during the 1980s mutant mania through titles like Dazzler and the New Defenders. I'm your host, Warpath Dylan. I'm Nico. And I'm Jonah. And I hope you survive the experience because, wow, this is hard to survive. Yeah, yeah, let, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just so hard. Because, like, here's the thing. I kind of I kind of got to give it up. You know, like, we're all babies here. I believe I'm the eldest of our ilk. <laughs> and, you know, the three of us were all in our early 30s to early 20s. <laughs> None of us were reading comics when this was out. We weren't even alive, actually, when these issues came out in 1982, 1983. And I know so many people that have been fans of Dazzler since 1980 when she debuted in the Dark Phoenix saga. And I kind of got to be like, damn, sis, I give it up. Because I have no idea how you people put this. this is holy shit this is trying as the, the goddess brenda said it's like having sex with a backup dancer they don't love themselves <laughs> <laughs> no they just don't love themselves this is this is a tough read Dylan, this isn't your first time reading it, right? I had read bits and pieces of it. Issue 21 was actually the first time I ever bought a solo Dazzler comic, mainly just because the cover was a real-life person, and I thought that was so cool when I found it in some, like, dollar bin box when I was little. I remember when I was younger and I read it, I was like, this is not the Dazzler I like, and then I didn't (laughs) read any Dazzler books for a while. Jonah, I think you actually, like, you, like, came after that cover, actually. <laughs> oh, I thought it was so weird and out of place, and it, it like, it, it was so jarring, <laughs> and, like, I understand what they were trying to do for it, but it was, it was weird. <laughs> it was, no, for real. It absolutely looks like somebody tried to make some kind of weird mum and shun. <laughs> I don't understand what's happening. Like, like, really weird, like, angelic pulp fiction porn Aww. yeah it's it's just not comfortable it's it's a serious perversion of my of my love of dazzler but more than that there are a number of comfortable perversions in this book and it's okay so like dazzler is somebody who's been through so much right and i frequently when i'm reading this book i can't believe this is the dazzler that's in the x-men outback era i can't believe this is the dazzler that shows up in eve of destruction can't believe this is the dazzler that runs around excalibur this woman is so not the extraordinary emotional powerhouse that resonates with me as a character so i read this and i'm like who the hell is she and the creative team was pretty consistent throughout it was danny finger off on 17 through 24 with Frank Springer on art. Danny Fingeroff continued to write 25 and 26 with Stephen Grant and the return of Frank Springer on art before 27 and 28 saw Springer take over the title in its totality. It's so weird to me that the creative team was so consistent, but the characterization was not. I guess, I mean, I don't like. <laughs> the, 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 oh my god. That, that's exactly what they were thinking. And, oh, okay. <laughs> 
And like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think that Danny Fingeroff or Frank Springer could have possibly been in a band or heard music. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. There are times where I, I'm like, if you're going to do certain creative aspects to your story, like music and have a singer, maybe it would have been best to hire a professional musician or a music producer and actually give them correct details on how to write a proper story. Yeah, it's, it's really tough because I find myself really frustrated trying to read it. Like, I don't know how to quite explain it, but there's something about having been in multiple bands and I've played, you know, national venues. And, like, I've been backstage and I've helped roadie for way bigger acts. And, like, I, I have, like, some vague idea of what a rehearsal studio is like and there is something so built on artifice about the way these creators explain what being in a band is like. It really is like that episode of Saved by the Bell where they all sing Friends Forever. Like, that is the level of understanding of being in a band that these people are showing. I'm not sure what to do with that. <laughs> but, you know, hey, it's the decision that they made. Like, in Gazzler not being a superhero, Gazzler is the anti-heroine. Literally, she's described as the anti-heroine in one of the letters pages. Dylan, she's like, she's Gazzler and she's such a fucking superhero. And they're literally describing her as the anti-heroine. Does that even feel like you're Dazzler? Like you were mentioning at the beginning of this episode about this Dazzler not being the Dazzler that you were used to from the Outback and 90s and Mojo World and all of that. Sometimes, nowadays, especially with social media and being able to see how many fans there are of certain characters, I'm always in awe of the number of Dazzler fans that there is in the world because most of them talk about how much they love every aspect of Dazzler. And going back through these first years of Dazzler, I don't understand why they love those years. Or I think maybe I, I'm starting to learn that maybe this is why they appreciate her so much in books now, because she completely made a 360 and became a way better character in the late 80s. Dude, I'm so glad to hear you say some of that, because sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who's like, no, no, no it's okay to love everything about Dazzler, but like, really, really hate plot and do stupidity. Really, really hate sort of like because like there's something so close like that the, the stalker issue is really fascinating because that kind of comes back up again and uncanny and like there's things I really like here that we're going to see some iterations of again. But man, Jonah, you got to be asking yourself sometimes why we're doing this run so extensively. From a logical standpoint, it makes so much sense because Dazzler being the first mutant to have her own solo title is pretty impressive, even though she was meant to be pushing a product. But it's, it's so heartbreaking that a character that people love so fiercely and so much has so little respect given to her in her early appearances and in her early title that it's almost jarring and it's not to take away anyone's love from her she has done an extreme 360 or 180 in her character but it's almost like no sometimes it's a 360 (laughs) when the bar is so below like it's at under the sea level really only can go up from there when the bar is in the crawl space you kind of got to adjust your expectations i feel like you just compared dazzler to the little mermaid So, (laughs) one of the things that I don't know, like, it's like clock slapping in the face. I was really blown away by the number of guest stars in this book, but there was an interesting turning point. I felt like there was an overwhelming number of guest stars up until the 24th issue. 
at issue 24, they said, look, we've tried everything we can to make this book work. This book never works. We're going to buy monthly. And the only reason anybody that is a guest star is going to pop back up is because you already have that story you've got to finish out. To that point, Angel appeared in 17 through 24, Doc Ock in 17, Absorbing Man in 17 through 19, The Avengers in 18 and 21, The Hulk in issue 18, The Fantastic War in 18 and 21, The Inhumans in 19, Daredevil and Spider-Man in 21. Power Man and Iron Fist appeared in 21, 23, 24, Misty Knight in 21, and then Mystique, Rogue, and Destiny, some combination of the sisterhood, appeared in 22 through 24, as well as 27 and 28. So, I can't help but notice, so many characters pop up so many times, and then there's just like this dramatic change at 24, this like huge cliff they jump off. Suddenly, there is a fill-in artist, and before you know it, Rogue's power- Okay, so like, hear me out. I want to pitch you guys something that I really think. At 24, two years into the title, it seems like they made a decision to kind of pump the brakes on Dazzler a little bit. They took Rogue away from Dazzler. This is her end of her kind of Dazzler experiences before she transitions over to Uncanny X-Men. But I can't help but notice Lois has a power that works maybe a little bit like Rogue. Exactly like Rogue. So it almost, yeah, so it almost seems like they were trying to find a way to give Rogue back to Claremont since a major decision was made that the book wasn't working anyway. All of a sudden the wealth of guest stars dried up. Jonah, this is like, this had to be like fucking Dazzler team up for you. Dazzler duets. Yeah, it just, it felt like such a bizarre swap, like, and, like, Lois is, like, the dumbest character, right? I, yeah, <laughs> well, every time I see her name, and her name is Lois London, and every time I just want to say Lois Lane, this is not that company, no, she's not a reporter in Chicago, which is where Dylan does not work, <laughs> and... <laughs> It's it's really upsetting when your new strategy is introduce a plethora of new characters when your main star isn't cutting it by herself. Dylan, at some point, were you just, like, trying to keep... Like, I mean, seriously, it really does start to feel like reading an Ohat movie. Uh, like you just said, too, Jonah, all of these issues, literally, since the last episode that we did, I think there was a few issues in that, and then through all of these, it's, like, Dazzler and her amazing friends and they were desperately trying to I don't know have an interesting story by adding in other people that are actually interesting because Dazzler is not she's just not interesting yet I find that one of the things that people get really like touchy about is they don't want to hear that a character that they identify with is lame but like I really need people to sometimes remember characters are fictional entities we're saying that some guys didn't really understand how to write the complexities of women in an era where the industry kind of prided itself on its misogyny Instead of now, where half of the industry prides itself on misogyny and the other half of the industry gets doxxed by the first half. So, I just can't help but wonder how Dazzler hung the fuck on for so long with these, like, third-rate, piss-poor alley cat stories. Like, seriously, these are just, these are just like, it's like, this book reminds me of cartoons of a cat in an alley, like, poking at, like, fish bones, trying to find another drop of meat. Like, just trying to find fish meat. Dazzler is a cat looking for fish meat. Fish meat Dazzler. Fish meat Dazzler, this is the worst! Why does this only happen on Dazzler episodes? It's like you just came up with a weird name for a Barbie doll of Dazzler. Fish meat Dazzler, she's actually like a fishmonger. <laughs> And she works at the fish market, and she actually she has a trawler. This whole series, it's actually a bunch of ex-women working. Oh my god, I never needed a book more. It's a bunch of ex-women working on a Norwegian fish trawler, right? And they go out to sea, and they bring back the fish. 
and they sell them at market, and they charge a fair price, of course, <laughs> and they... It's amazing. This sounds I'm like really a better wow. career move for Dazzler than her as a singer. At this point, I would agree, but, like, I've never... Ne- like, I kind of need an X-Men meets Newsies called, like, Fish Seas about these amazing X-Men opening this fish company. The plot that you just gave sounds way better than these 12 issues that we just read. Anything sounds better than these 12 issues. To that, I have to say, there's nowhere to go but down. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. One of the things that I find the most baffling is how poorly these writers treat women as not just, like, does it seem to me like these writers are very comfortable passing around women back and forth? Like, I'm not trying to get, like, specifically weird, but I've never understood why straight guys enjoy going to strip clubs together. Like, there's a really weird cultural exchange in let's all have erections looking at each other, and I don't know why that's, like, a straight guy pastime. Oh, I'm getting married tomorrow. Better get erections with my friends one last time. And, like, I don't understand. <laughs> just, right? It's like a weird straight guy thing. Just get in a hard one with the boys. Oh. Just get in a hard one with the boys, right? Instead, where are you guys going? Going down to the hardware store. That's what they call the strip club. So, like, I don't necessarily understand why would a bunch of straight men have the opportunity to write a beautiful, complex, strong woman. They have a lot of guys all try to, like, bang her. Because, like, it's, you know, it's like, like, are you all that eager to be Eskimo brothers? I do kind of want to add a point to that with these issues and most of the previous issues before this. I will say that, like we've mentioned, most of Dazzler has been kind of awful so far. It is kind of nice to see that these misogynistic writers are actually kind of writing Dazzler kind of like they do other male characters who have their own solo books. And I don't know, kind of being ahead of the time of letting Dazzler kind of date around. I feel like other books and things of this era would have just had a female character be, I don't know, tied down to one person type of thing, if that makes sense. Oh, okay, so, alright, now, like, I really see what you're trying to say. I saw it as sort of a statement on Dazzler as a commodified item she passed around and sexualized for each man's pleasure, but your point is, in that regard, she is still self-possessed, and it kind of breaks the trope of sort of that innocence, that chasteness that often goes with these heroines. You know, even if Kitty Pride is all about getting that big metal D, she's all about getting that big metal D in a very taking it slow, kissing under the mistletoe kind of way. And here Dazzler is like, no, get out of my room. When I come back out of here, completely naked, by the way, you better not be in here. Because, like, what was the plan? What was the... No! Like, I bet you better not be here. It's not like I'll be vulnerable if I come out naked. Like, what was the plan? I don't want to know where she thought she could hide her tape. Oh, my... So, Jonah, as somebody reading... You know, actually, I just remembered she is a taser. So... (laughs) Jonah, what did you think about uh, Dazzler dazzling it up all over those lamps? That's... I... I... Um, you know, it's... (laughs) I don't mind... Okay. I have so many problems. I, I, I don't know where to start. You're like I, on the verge of tears. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to need a therapist, and I'm going to need to talk to the therapist just about these issues of Dazzler, and they're going to be like, well, do you want to get into like your childhood trauma, or like you know things that are bothering you? No, 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 no. We need to talk about these issues. <laughs> this is what's currently bothering Talk about Dazzler 1 through 28. So, you know what? It's really unusual, because when you go to talk about your issues <laughs> to a therapist, they're usually not numbered, bagged, and you know what I mean? <laughs> my problem
problem with the romance of Angel and Dazzler's continuation with her relationship with Ken is I don't like either of those men. I can <laughs> Dazzler doesn't either, so it's fine. Uh, and Dazzler, no. Ken and his Ronald McDonald looking ass needs to stay in the courtroom. It, like, they don't, Dazzler and Ken just don't seem like they work for me. I think they want two different things out of life, and it's really weird that they still just want to see each other, and like, they're both adults, and I think they should both be realizing, hey, we just don't work together. Angel's just a creep who, after Dazzler said, no, I'm taken, still pushed very aggressively upon her. He Let me break into your life. He bought a restaurant to stalk her. That is weird. Guys, Ken and Dazzler's couple's name would be DeKen. <gasps> we cracked the code. Which makes me real. Wait, yeah, right? It actually makes me realize the only way Dazzler could have worse taste in men is if she was going after that bald old man. Is Xavier the one man Dazzler isn't dating right now? And is Dazzler the one woman who isn't given sexual chemistry with that weird, lascivious headmaster? She is. I, I feel like you crack a Marvel code and someone's gonna come beat down my door. Yeah, I think we just got put on a list. If we weren't already. Oh man, you know, every episode I hear Dylan get more desperate to get out of it in the seminar. <laughs> Every episode, he, like, races towards... I know, and you can find Madhouse House, goodbye. Like, every episode, he's like, I need to get out of here a little bit harder than the week before. So, yeah. Then we're we doing... tell if episodes are recorded out of order by how sad it <laughs> is. Well, I feel like we're doing our job right now. <laughs> uh, we absolutely are. Now, you know, beyond just treating her poorly romantically, I feel like something that I found very frustrating was an over-reliance on the idea that her father was the center of her world. And, like, trust me, I had a, I have a sister whose whole, like, you know, she's daddy's little girl. Cool, but I don't feel like my sister's whole world is decided by my father. And I just use that as an example because I feel like I know plenty of adult women whose whole lives are decided by their father. And I don't love all of the implications that Dazzler needs her father's approval but proves to herself that she's an adult by not needing her father's approval. But, like, immediately, they go back on that. It's like, issue 24 really is a turning point in a lot of ways. Issue 25 starts this sort of, like, Dazzler is no longer a singer kind of vibe. Like, they're really done with that storyline, finally. But they went out of their way to make it really clear that we're not done with that storyline. In 21, they make Dazzler's aspirations frivolous. They hinge the success of her personal worth on her father and mother. And then nearly every woman introduced other than Dazzler's roommates turns out to in some way be deceptive, holding a secret, manipulative, and I just find myself exhausted by how hard these creators couldn't, they just couldn't see how poorly they were treating women, and I just find it crazy. It is absolutely insane, and speaking of poor treatment, I want to specifically talk about the art. Now, it's, um, very recently I've discovered that there, on the internet, there is, I guess, a large number of people who love to bash men drawing women in non-human ways. And the way I phrase that is specifically because Dazzler has a tendency to be drawn in poses that are not humanly possible, and it's really fucking weird that it's like these men have never seen a woman before, and they don't know how women's anatomy works, or human anatomy works, and it's just like, if it's one issue, okay, you let it slide, but it's consistently 
throughout all of these issues that Dazzler and other women aren't drawn like actual human beings. There is absolutely some great, you know, like, it's one thing to stylize anatomy, but it is another thing that it frequently looks like Dazzler is trying to put both of her feet into her own hoo-ha by stretching them around her body over her face, and I'm really not sure why that's the go-to pose for this poor woman. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to it because you two were spot on. That I mean, I wanted to kind of say that for the most part, besides the misogynistic poses of women, the art in most of these books was kind of the only good thing besides certain poses that Dazzler was put in. The cover art for most of the books was probably the only really awesome thing about all of these issues, especially certain covers by John Romita Jr. And even though it's Issue 26 has Joe Jusko's really sexualized picture of Dazzler. It is a pretty amazing piece. Yeah, there's something really fascinating about the way the covers experimented with that kind of like 80s Marvel epic comic severity, really leaning into like the painted style we've been seeing on a number of the Marvel graphic novels. I find myself fine with the art, not super happy, but fine with it. And I also feel like, um, I'm trying to find the right way to put it. I thought that Rogue looked like a fucking Pokemon in her first few appearances, so I'm glad that she finally looks like a human being. I like Rogue. This, like, really short cut hair is not my favorite. It's not the worst, and if that's the art direction they went for for the character, that's fine, but I don't know if it helps because in these issues, it felt so bad for Rogue because Rogue came off so terribly and really, like, I don't know if you two, if it came across to you two this way, very coded, very heavily gay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's really very masculine and feels like a freak among freaks. And yeah, I definitely see there is a lot of the sort of archetypical coming-of-age narrative elements from this era. And I don't feel she reads particularly feminine. She feels very masculine to defeat Dazzler's femininity. And, you know, Claremont himself, didn't ever put Rogue with Gambit during his tenure. That Gambit barely existed under Claremont's pen. Claremont saw a very different relationship with Rogue, but outside of that, Claremont kept Rogue very, I would say, unsexual as much as he could due to the nature of her abilities, and so I don't think it's even a particularly difficult read to get there with later Rogue either, so I think that's a really interesting point. I completely agree, but my thoughts on it are, I kind of feel like a lot of writers back in the 80s, when it comes to female that had super strength as a power, I think some of them kind of didn't really know how to write a, a female with super strength to be able to still be a feminine, too. They all just come off like big Bartha. Yeah. yeah, they're all just like a big Bertha kind of bruiser badass. Yeah, it's kind of, it's thin, you know, it's unfortunate because there's room for so many amazing women comics. And, you know, I would be a lot more okay with the problematic ones if there were more amazing ones, if there were more strong, concrete examples to point to. But they're not even getting the most basic elements of representation down at this point in comicdom. And to this day, they're still struggling. I think that the big mistake is that, at this point, they did not see the value of putting a woman on a woman book. I think perhaps there was a concern that it would make a book exclusively female. We're going to see a number of women start to write more books, especially in and around the X office. Women like Louise Simonson, better known as Weezy, is going to write New Mutants for years, as well as X-Factor. An X-Men editor, Anne Nascenti, is going to go over to Daredevil, and by virtue of working on Daredevil, she is going to bring Daredevil into the X-Men crossovers a number of times. Crossovers like the Mew Massacre and Inferno and that. And June 
Brigham is going to begin doing work on the Incredible Power Pack. So we are going to start to see women writing at Marvel. Certainly not enough. Certainly not a number that fills me with pride. But there was a push to see women begin work in comics. And so I have to assume that the fear was if a woman wrote the woman comic, it would be the woman book. And while that was seen as a weakness in the 1980s, I can't help but think how much further comics could be today if perhaps a woman had been in charge of Dazzler and could have spoken to the female experience in a way that demystified it early. I think the success of so many strong female characters has been part of what's helped the very slow awakening of fanboy culture. Hello everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of X-Rex. I'm Matthew, your friendly neighborhood recommender. Today, I'm here with another stretch of a recommendation, but there's at least a handful of mutants in this one, rather than just the one. There's actually three of them, although none of them have ever been X-Men, at least not in the 616 anyway. But the main mutant in question is Molly Hayes. She's wonderful and makes up for not being an X-Man by being an awesome little pint-sized powerhouse. That's right, kids. Today, I'm bringing you Runaways Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughn. I super briefly considered just covering the first arc of the story, but there's really no way to do that well. Runaways Volume 1 is best taken as a whole story. The arcs within it are relatively episodic, but it's the overarching story that makes the Burt book worthy of all the praise it receives. Runaways is the story of six quote-unquote normal teenagers who discover that their parents are the heads of a supervillain organization called the Pride, who controls most of California. As her name implies, upon discovering their parents stabbing a girl to death and harvesting her soul, the kids run away! And who can blame them? Along the way, they each unlock powers or equipment that helps them prepare to take on their parents, because of course they'll be the ones who have to take them down. At the start of the series, each of the six fill a relatively standard tropes. The jock, the valley girl, the goth chick, etc. But none of the characters stays that shallow for long, and by the end, they all display depth and complexity not generally granted to their expected tropes. Runaways shines with its characters. The plot itself is strong and fun, but it's window dressing to the character relationships that build through the series. And it isn't just between the children. Their interactions with their parents, while antagonistic, are nuanced and complex. Soul-stealing villains or not, these are still their parents, and that comes with the associated weight and baggage. Molly herself, being the youngest, desperately wants her family back, despite understanding and believing that her parents are supervillains. She has no delusions about that fact. And let's be clear, soul-sealing aside, the Pride aren't purely black in their morality either. A little way into the series, we learn the how and why of them joining forces, and it complicates matters rather severely. Oh, and by the way, there's a mole, and I don't mean a literal mole, though I'm pretty sure Mole Man shows up in a later volume. Anyway, there's a reason Runaways keeps coming back as a series, even with some rather distressingly long hiatuses. And while I haven't watched the Hulu series yet, I've heard it does right by the characters and story. The cast is inherently diverse, the writing is top-notch, and the art improves dramatically with time. Sorry folks, the first couple of issues are a little rough, but they definitely improve. Plus, bonus points for effective use of metaphorical queer subtext that later becomes text. Sorry, not sorry for that spoiler. That note, I'm out. As always, catch me on Instagram at homo. I promise the next segment will be at least somewhat less of a stretch in X-relatedness. TTFN. I tend to be a person who likes some C-list, D-list, Z-list characters. I actually like Dazzler's sister, Lois, even though she is kind of crappy in all these issues. Didn't she get a big, she got a big push during the close oh, yes, right? We're gonna get to that. I think issue 28, which is a part of this reading list, was actually the last time we saw Lois. 
until in 2009. Craig Kyle, Christopher Yost, Mike Carey, and Zeb Wells made a, I think, pretty awesome X-Men crossover storyline called Necrotia. Lois reappeared then, working with Celine. I like characters that pop up out of nowhere that haven't been seen for 30 years. I'll be honest, I thought Necrotia was kind of like the best of a bad crossover situation. It was really clearly the secondary crossover that wasn't being given as much attention to time. They had just relaunched like a minute earlier, and it was just a few too many crossovers going on all at once. So Necrotia kind of felt like it got wayside when it had clearly been Apex purpose of stories they've been weaving together for at that point, I want to say like six years. So it was a little disappointing to feel like Necrotia was half the crossover it should have been. But I remember really liking a number of the things that came out of it. It did unfortunately bring back 616 Lynch. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of deal the teleporting Archer hand were dope. You know what I mean? And I do love your point that Dazzler has such a strong fan base because if I'm not mistaken wasn't Lois brought back by the power of the fan community like begging for it on the I think it was the CBR forums where Yost and Kyle used to frequent I'm pretty sure it was like tons of Dazzler fans always just wanted loose ends of certain things like Lois to come back at least once. You know, and at that point, Mike Carey's X-Men legacy was really about closing out every single storyline that was left in all of existence. And it was about trying to make sense of some really complicated ideas. And it's really cool to see that Mike Carey's legacy is coming up again in the pages of Hox Pox and Dawn of X. I guess I'm waiting for Allie to come up with Dawn of X, because, I mean, she's got it at this point, right? Hopefully, and hopefully other characters like Warpath, too. So <laughs> oh, yeah, there's so many characters that are currently missing, and I feel like, Jonah, you've got to be freaking the fuck out wondering where your precious hurt is. If we're going off of portraits, I guess they made it kind of seem like he's going to be appearing in Marauders? Perhaps. I mean, I need him ASAP. Kurt is, you know, the lifeblood of the X-Men's innocence. He's the gentle spirit that they all protect. At his darkest, he's still, you know, Bravo, the cutie! You know, he's fucking Nightcrawler! So, it's... Anyway, I guess that's it for this episode of Nexus for Podcast. It's been so much fun talking about the worst year of Dazzler's life. That I, No, it hasn't. It's been awful. It's been awful. This was 12 issues that were just really unfair to a terrific dynamic character. The stories themselves are not without their merits. The writing of Danny Fingeroff includes some really interesting Interesting surprises, although there are far too many tropes. Dazzler's mother abandoning responsibility is unfortunate. The hyper-controlling nature of men over women's lives is unfortunate. But there's still some good in there. We find the Dazzler that we love occasionally shining through. And you know what? These weren't the worst appearances of Angel, I guess. The art was lovely for the most part. Some of the covers were pretty interesting. It's just not a good book. I'm surprised you haven't talked about a certain two issues there at the end's cover. Oh, uh, the Sinkevichs? You know, I really like them, but in a lot of ways, they kind of look like 1980s eyeglass ads. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because they're kind of blurry. Like, yeah, they're just not the best Sinkevich, so I'm kind of like, eh. You know, they weren't, it's just, it's not the worst issues I'm ever going to read in my life, and I'm certainly not saying they're even the worst issue you've read so far, but I find myself disappointed. This cannot be the best that women deserved in the 80s. This cannot be the best that anyone deserved, ever. So, Jonah, this had to be, I mean, you're, you're halfway through Dazzler. Dazzler ran 42 issues. It would also see a four-issue miniseries, in the Beauty and the Beast, as well as a Marvel graphic novel, Dazzler the Beast. That's 47 issues. We just hit issue number 28. How does it feel being halfway through Believing, <laughs> um, it's. 
I'm holding out hope. You know, Dazzler right now is my beacon of light of, okay, I know that there's so much more that this character can give and can do and that there can be with this character. I know once I get through this trash, I'm going to find the diamond. And and please, please, please hold on to that. <laughs> she gets so Dylan, much cooler. Taking the- oh, she does. She so does. Dylan, you know, as somebody who read around and like, you know, kind of like dazzle hopped here and there, finally sitting back and taking in the full breadth of these stories, how does it feel having your fandom rewarded with this level of nearly disrespect for the character? I'm kind of at a loss of words. Like I said earlier, talking about other Dazzler fans who are super hardcore, I'm actually appreciating the Dazzler that I know from the Outback eras and things more, and I'm glad to see that she grew. I mean, I guess I'm glad to see that she grew. I I hate reading a character that I love's origin stories being so crappy. So, yeah, I I don't know, but that's my answer. (laughs) I get it. I love horror movies, and I love my family, but I don't think I want to see my family cast in a horror movie, right? And so, until the killer comes to stab my family to death, Jonah, where can everybody find you on the internet? Stealing experimental anti-personnel hawks from the Pentagon, because you know, that's what the government has. <laughs> like you do! Oh, I, I forgot, I stole these with my secret identity. <laughs> that's clearly just me. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me going into limbo for 26 years like Lois did, so I don't have to do any more Dazzler episodes. Or you <laughs> on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group, House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network in the archives on shows like Now and Again. You can also find my theme work on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, as well as my other feeds of this show, such as We Are Krakoa on Thursdays or HTML, where together we dissect film franchises one movie at a time. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, until we return, talk about some better books and some happier times, like anything else. We will see you. Bye. Bye.